Welcome to another episode of How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. It's a special episode today. We are doing the end notes for the life of Alexander the Great. All the thoughts I had, all of the random floatsome and jetsum that I didn't get to in the two main episodes is going to be here. So it's a little more free-flowing, less of a structure, less narrative, and uh, I hope you guys like it. The list of topics that I'm going to cover includes what happened after Alexander's death and the successor kingdoms. Alexander's sexuality, uh, a review of the Alexander the Great movie directed by Oliver Stone in 2004. If Alexander was Greek, why did he have blonde hair and light eyes? Uh, so just kind of random thoughts on uh, on Alexander and his life and stuff I didn't get to. So let's jump in after this word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Cold Plunge. I'm going to give you a little spoiler and tell you about an incident from the middle of Alexander's life. On one of the campaigns, Alexander had one of his officers, a powerful man from a well-to-do city-state, stripped of his rank. What was this man's offense that Alexander would punish him like this? He took a bath in warm water. Wild, right? Why was it so important to Alexander that his men bathe in only cold water? Well, he knew it kept them sharp. And actually, modern science has confirmed the benefits of cold exposure and cold baths specifically. Taking cold baths has been shown to increase blood flow, improve sleep, support your immune system, and boost your mood, among other benefits. That's why ice baths are something that I have incorporated into my fitness regime for a long time. But guess what? My days of hauling giant bags of ice from the grocery store are over. That is something I actually used to do. That's because now I am proud to partner with Cold Plunge. The Cold Plunge has cooling technology that gives you ice bath levels of cold without all the hassle. And with their filtration and sanitation technology, it makes the experience far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. You can fill up your cold plunge with a hose, set your temperature, and you're off. It couldn't be easier. So check them out at thecoldplunge.com and use code BENWILSON to get $150 off. Once again, that is thecoldplunge.com and use my name as the code B-E-N-W-I-L-S-O-N for $150 off. One thing I wanted to address is a question I got after last episode, which is essentially just so what made Alexander so great? Why is it that he is considered so much greater than other generals and other conquerors? This person didn't think that was clear from the last episode, so I wanted to clarify that here. So the first thing that added to his mystique is that he was literally undefeated. He never lost a battle ever in his entire career. And that's not something that Caesar or Napoleon or... I won't say any other general because I don't I don't know of every conqueror in the history of the world, but but it's very rare to say that he was literally undefeated in battle. The other thing is that his empire was so impressive. And it's true, if you look at, say, the Mongol Empire or the Roman Empire at its height, both of those were larger than Alexander's Macedonian Empire. So what was it that was so impressive about his empire? It's not just the territorial extent. It's not the number of of acres or miles or or kilometers that were under his control, but it's because he, well, so first of all, the Greeks were very, very powerful, but they had never been united ever before this. And so if he had only been the person who had united Greece, then that itself would have been an achievement because when they were united, they were the great power of the Mediterranean, really. 
And furthermore, you know, besides them, the other great power were the Persians and, and the Persian Empire. And so the fact that he was able to unite these two into one political unit uh, is, would be like today bringing the United States and China into a single country. Or, or perhaps at the height of the Cold War, the United States and the USSR. So that's part of what made his empire so impressive. I think the other part is that he was doing this in the style of an old warlord. He was literally charging in there and swinging with his own sword and conquering with the strength of his own arms and those of his companions. And consolidating that and achieving these diplomatic victories with the strength of his own charisma, his own good looks and, and, um, and charm. And so it's not just what he did in having an undefeated record and creating what he did, but it's also the person of Alexander is a uniquely impressive specimen. I'd like to read from the end of Arian's biography where he gives his assessment of Alexander's character. He says, quote, he lived 32 years and eight months and reigned for 12 years and eight months. He had an extraordinary physical beauty and hardihood and an exceedingly shrewd and courageous spirit. He was unsurpassed in his love of honor, his zest for danger, and his scrupulous attention to the rights of the gods. He was extremely adept at seeing immediately what had to be done when it was not yet obvious and was exceptionally good at guessing what was likely to happen based on the available evidence. He showed outstanding talent for drawing up, arming, and equipping an army in raising his soldiers' morale, filling them with good hopes, and dispelling their fear in times of danger by his own fearlessness, he showed himself supremely gifted. All that needed to be done openly, he did with the utmost courage. While in situations requiring stealth and speed, he also excelled at getting the jump on his enemies before they suspected what was coming. So, you know, he's summarizing some of his strategies, some of the things that made him great, but what I like is that he starts with, you know, one of the first things he said is, he had an extraordinary physical beauty and hardihood. So it wasn't just what he accomplished, it was who he was. It was his good looks, his charisma, his courage, his honor, his grit, his cleverness, the whole package. That is what made him Alexander the Great. Not just what he did, but who he was. Okay, next topic. I wanna to talk a little bit about the successor kingdoms. So just before Alexander dies, the legend goes that he says, you know, to, to whom should the kingdom go? And Alexander says, to the strongest. Okay, I, I recounted that that story. Many historians think it's a little too neat and uh, it probably didn't actually happen quite like that. But whether or not it actually happened, it was a good summary of kind of how things would go. So immediately there was this problem that people only wanted a blood relation of Alexander to be king, naturally. So there was, um, when he died, his wife was pregnant, Roxana. And so she gave birth to a boy. So Alexander IV was his son, but obviously he, he's just born. He's born after Alexander dies, right? So he's not ready to be king. And he also had an illegitimate son by his mistress, Barsine, and that child's name was Heracles. And then there was his mentally disabled brother, Aridaeus. So you've got these three kind of possible kings, the, the leading of which is definitely Alexander IV, but Aridaeus and Heracles would probably be acceptable kings to his soldiers, at least, uh, as well. So, so there's all these powerful generals sitting around and they do want to keep the empire together if possible. And so they come out to this arrangement, partially decided by Alexander in advance too, that this guy named Perdiccas would take over as the regent until Alexander's son could come of age. 
Perdiccas was kind of a choice because he wasn't that powerful. He didn't have that big of a power base to himself. So they figured, okay, he can kind of be a somewhat neutral arbiter, someone that none of us have to worry about too much until Alexander can come take over the whole thing. And in the meantime, we, these powerful generals, who are called the successors, will take the separate satrapies, be governors, sort of under Perdiccas, but not really under him, more sort of peers to him, beside him, will we'll be these really powerful governors and, and split up the empire between us. Well, the problem was that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to have it be an empire, but not have it be an empire. So the thing that kind of kicks things off is up in Afghanistan, of course, because Afghanistan is famous as the graveyard of empires. You have Macedonian and Greek troops that start deserting. They've been there for a while and they're like, this is so far from home. This is so foreign to us. It's not very hospitable or, or fun area to be in. It's very cold. And so they say, forget this, we're going home. And so they start leaving and people in that region start rebelling. So Perdiccas calls on some of his satraps, some of these great generals to provide troops and forces to maintain the territorial integrity of the empire, to, to send people to, to shore up Afghanistan, essentially. And when he requests these troops, the generals essentially say, no, go pound sand. You can't tell us what to do. And we'd rather not. So Perdiccas is in a tough spot. He essentially feels like, well, if I don't do anything now, then the empire is over. I, I have to be able to command troops in order to maintain the integrity of, of our borders. And so he attacks some of these generals. He's actually attacking Ptolemy, which is one of Alexander's main generals in Egypt. And he tries to cross the Nile and the army isn't able to cross the Nile and many people drown and he's assassinated. And so thus ends Perdiccas. And when he dies, essentially no one takes over. The different satrapies just split up into their own things and these generals take over and eventually call themselves kings. The one who takes over Macedonia proper, you know, the region where Alexander and his family were from, where he had grown up, that's Antipater, who you will remember is this very old, very stately general who had, had served under Philip, Alexander's father, and uh, had been very loyal to Alexander, had actually initially declared him king right, right when Philip died. And so he takes over, but he's very, very old. And when he dies, it turns out that he had done something actually kind of similar to Alexander. He had not left the kingdom of Macedonia to his son. He left it to a nobody, an old veteran general named Polyperchon. And his son was a, a very charismatic, very powerful, very, a go-getter, a, a great general in his own right. So why wouldn't he leave the kingdom to his son? Well, I think what he was trying to do is kind of the same thing as Alexander. He's trying to get just a, a caretaker, someone not super impressive, so that everyone will know this is not the permanent king of Macedonia. He's just a placeholder here until Alexander's son can come of age. Well, this does not fly with Antipater's son, Cassander. So again, to, to, to clarify, because I think that's a little confusing, Antipater takes over as king of Macedonia when Alexander dies. Antipater, rather than pass the kingdom to his own son, gives it to a nobody in hopes that someday Alexander's son will grow up and be able to take the kingdom of Macedonia. But Cassander, Antipater's son, doesn't stand for this and uh, and says, forget this, attacks uh, Polyperchon, this, this nobody, this placeholder, and eventually is victorious. 
Alexander's mother, Olympias, had sided with Polyperchon, and uh, so he imprisons Olympias as well as Alexander's son, Alexander the Fourth, and he lets them kind of rot in jail for a few years while everyone forgets about them, and then he has them killed. He also eventually has Heracles, his illegitimate son, killed as well. And uh, I can't remember what ends up happening to Aridaeus, Alexander's mentally disabled brother, but he ends up dying as well. And so that is the end of Alexander's line and the possibility that any of his heirs or blood relatives would reign. In the rest of the empire, it settles into four and then three main kingdoms. So you had Cassander in Macedonia, who I just mentioned, and that actually eventually gets taken over by a dynasty called the Antigonids. In Egypt, you had Ptolemy, who I also mentioned, and his descendants would be the most successful and long-lasting of the kingdoms. They ruled Egypt for hundreds of years until actually Julius Caesar came along, and Cleopatra was a direct descendant of Ptolemy. So we can connect those two stories. In Persia, you had the Seleucid Empire, and in Asia Minor, you had Lysimachus, who was a great general, although eventually his part of the kingdom would also get rolled up into the Seleucid Empire. So anyway, you have these successor kingdoms, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the Antigonids, and they would all like to be full inheritors of Alexander's kingdom. You know, they'd like to have the whole thing. But what happens is anytime that any one of them gets powerful enough to threaten to maybe be able to do it, then the other two team up to stop them. And so they try this for a while until it just settles into, okay, no, no one's going to be able to do this. There, there's kind of an uneasy piece that they settle into where they all keep their own territory and keep each other in check. And so Alexander's empire is never reconstituted. And so you're tempted to say that it's just a flash in the pan, right? That it existed for only a few years after he conquered the Persians until he died and then was gone forever. It left no legacy, did nothing of importance because the, king, the, the kingdom, the empire was gone. Which is true. As a political unit, his empire was not long-lasting. But Alexander's impact and his conquests were very long-lasting in that these successor kingdoms, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the Antigonids, spread Greek culture throughout the Mediterranean and the Near East. And really this homogenizing influence, one thing that they did was they made Greek the lingua franca that everyone could communicate in. And this created an environment in which trade was much easier, ideas could flow much faster because many, many people from many cultures and many backgrounds spoke and read and wrote Greek. And so they could communicate. And this is actually the environment and the context in which Christianity comes into Judea a couple hundred years later. And it's mostly through the language of Greek that Christianity spreads to the Middle East and then uh, to the Mediterranean and to Europe. And you also have the Roman Empire, which for most of the Roman Empire, you actually had more of its citizens who spoke Greek than who spoke Latin. And so the Romans' ability to maintain this empire in, in large part was due to the fact that Alexander and the successor kingdoms had sort of laid the groundwork for them by spreading Hellenic culture and the Greek language throughout all these areas. So even though Alexander's empire was a flash in the pan, gone almost as soon as it was created, it had very far-reaching effects that last up, up until the current day. The next thing to talk about is Alexander's sexuality. So obvious content warning if you're listening with children in the car or anything like that we're going to be talking sex for for a few minutes here so to start off with there is controversy around alexander of whether he was gay or straight essentially was the controversy i guess and to start off with i guess we kind of need to understand that greek sexuality was very different from our own 
The phrases straight, gay, and bisexual have no exact corresponding ancient Greek counterpart. The closest thing that you'd have to gay is an insult that essentially meant sissy, but that didn't mean gay. It was a very different thing. And that's because we tend to view sexuality as something that is fixed, that you're born with, that you are either gay, lesbian, straight, or bisexual. You kind of have these choices. Now, that is changing. Our understanding of sexuality is changing. I think that's less true than it was five or 10 years ago. But that's kind of the main lens through which we see sexuality in the world. And so we tend to ask this question, was Alexander gay? But the Greeks didn't view it that way. They tend to view being the passive partner in sex as feminine, whether you were a man or a woman, and being the active partner as masculine. And it didn't matter so much who your partner was. So you can connect the dots that if you were the active partner in sex, even if if you were having sex with another man or as was more common in those days, a, a young boy, that was viewed as a masculine thing, right? You, you were still the active participant. That, that is kind of a simplification. When you read about Greek sexual practices and and understandings and how they view the world, it really feels like you're reading about aliens. It's just so different. They have lots of rules and expectations that be foreign to us. I mean, one example is that, you know, some people view them as these sexual libertines and that, oh, I wish we could be, you know, more Greek in our understanding of, of sexual relations and more, more tolerant of homosexuality like they were, right? And yet, uh, homosexual sex between adult men was very uncommon and was actually frowned upon, was was not looked upon well in, in their age. It was expected that there should be at least 10 years between the senior and junior partner. And usually the junior partner was a minor who had not yet reached puberty. And it was, it was a little odd, at, at least, if not downright frowned upon, to continue to have relations with, with a young boy once he had reached puberty. So in other words, pedophilia was the norm for homosexual relations for them, and relations between consenting adults was much less common. Now, of course, that's the inverse of how we view it today, in which sex between adults is accepted and pedophilia is forbidden. So, and that's just, that's the main example. That's that's a huge part of their sexuality, but there are lots of things like that where you just go, whoa, wait, why would that be taboo and this be okay? They just viewed the world very differently. So when we ask the question, was Alexander gay or was he bisexual or was he straight? It's going to be very difficult to put him in a box, but let's just say what we know about Alexander and, and his sex life. He married three times and fathered two children and had one mis fathered one miscarriage. So that suggests a certain level of attraction to women. One of those children was fathered with a mistress, suggesting that it wasn't all just performing duty, that there was at least some level of genuine attraction towards women. On the other hand, we also know that he carried on an affair with a male, a eunuch named Bagoas, uh, while he was in Persia. We also have reports of his mother being concerned when Alexander was in early adulthood that he was overly fond of boys and not sufficiently interested in women. Arian, who I think is the most reliable of his biographers, doesn't mention these rumors, but he was quite friendly in his portrayal of Alexander. Also, the Romans 
didn't like all this boy sex stuff. So they tended to have a dimmer view on all that. So it would make sense that he would want to not talk about that as much anyways. So those rumors might be true. All this is to say, we don't know. What we do know is that Alexander had sexual relationships with both men and women, that that would have been normal for the time, and that he probably would have rejected whatever modern labels we tried to put on him. One of the most intense relationships of his life was with his childhood best friend, Hephaestion. And many have suggested that it was a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship, and some have even sought to portray them as, like, boyfriends, essentially, or, or almost spouses, because they were together for so long. And this is a mistake. It's possible that the relationship did have a sexual component, especially when they were younger, but that definitely wasn't the basis of their relationship. Friendship and companionship were. It was just a way more intense friendship than we were used to. So for example, when Alexander takes the camp of Darius and he comes to uh, Darius's sister and wife and mother, and they, they come to beg for their lives. Alexander's with Hephaestion. Hephaestion was apparently taller and looked more like a king. So they start bowing down to Hephaestion and say, please spare us. And everyone kind of giggles a little bit and is laughing at him. And Alexander, uh, to make them feel better, raises them up and says, don't worry, you haven't made a mistake, for Hephaestion is also Alexander. In other words, like, we are one. We're the same person. It's okay that you called him Alexander. He, he basically is, is what he's saying. And so people are going, oh, and anyways, anyway, so there's lots of stuff like this. That they had a very close, very intense relationship. They were together a lot. And, um, you know, it also reminds me, if you read the Bible, King David is one of the seminal figures of the Old Testament, and he has a close companion, Jonathan. And in the Bible, and I think it's one of the Psalms, David says that, you know, my love for you, Jonathan, surpasses the love of women. And so a lot of people take that as a not-so-coded reference to homosexuality. And uh, I, I just, I think that's not correct. I, it would be highly unlikely that a coded reference to homosexuality like that would survive in, in the Hebrew Bible all these centuries and millennia when that religion has been so hostile towards homosexuality. It's just a mega intense friendship that our culture doesn't really understand anymore how intense these, these male bonds could be. So, to get back to Hephaestion, I'm not saying that it was not romantic or sexual. It could have had that component. If it did, it was likely only for periods of time and not for the entire relationship. And if it did have that component, it was definitely not the defining nature of their relationship. Companionship, brotherhood is more how I would define their relationship. And, and frankly, they probably would have found it off-putting if someone tried to portray them as, as boyfriends or tried to make that the primary component of their relationship. And, and to sum up the whole thing, Alexander, it would be wrong to call him gay. It'd probably be wrong to call him straight. He was just Greek. <laughs> That's all you could say about it. He was Greek. Okay. I also want to talk about the movie Alexander the Great by Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, great American filmmaker and director, but this is not a great film. I watched it so that you don't have to. There, there are So let me start with the good, actually, because there are some good things about it. In the beginning, they start with the Battle of Gagamila, and much like Alexander the Great, the person, the movie is best when it's at war. The battle depictions at the Battle of Gagamila are actually really, really good, and they get a lot of things right. They get a lot of the strategies and tactics right. For example, 
the chariots that charge at the Macedonians, the Persian chariots, they have them set up the right way with spears in front that they would use to try and intimidate the Macedonians, try and get them to break ranks. And so they do that correctly. They also, I think, have the dynamics between the cavalry. They're riding around to the side looking for gaps where they can charge in and, and get through the enemy lines. I think that's very accurate. They have the Sarissa spearmen, and I think they get those tactics essentially right. And so that part is is pretty cool and, and pretty correct. The rest... <laughs> Um, so they do, they have some like really bizarre choices. So for example, Colin Farrell is Irish and apparently could not turn off his Irish accent. So they make everyone who's Macedonian have an Irish accent, whether they're Irish actors or not. Now this actually could have worked. I actually think this could have been really smart if what they had done was give the Greeks like classical Queens English, English accents to make them sound urban and refined and like they think they're the center of the world and then all the Macedonians have Irish accents. I think that would have worked but they don't do that. <laughs> they just have the Macedonians all have Irish accents for no particular reason. There's a partial eclipse at Gagamila at that battle. That's actually correct. That really did happen. It didn't happen on the day of the battle. It happened before but still it's kind of cool that they included that. I just talked about Hephaestion and I actually they got criticized for the way they handled the Hephaestion relationship, Oliver Stone did, because I think the criticism was, oh, you didn't show Hephaestion and Alexander as, as being gay lovers, as being boyfriends, were you scared, essentially, to depict a gay relationship on screen? Instead, what he did was this very intense and ambiguous relationship, which I think is actually what it really was, I think is, is very accurate. So I actually, I give Oliver Stone a, a pass there. I think he did a good job with that. The way, I actually think Colin Farrell was a, a pretty good Alexander. He's very intense, but emotional and did this good thing. Alexander was this odd combination of stoic and tough, but at the same time, emotional and understanding. He had lots of friendships with women. I don't know. And they just kind of got that right. I don't know. His vibe is right. And he has this intensity, this wildness behind his eyes that I think is is pretty accurate and, and is good. Made, made me feel like that really seems like Alexander. Hephaestion, as I mentioned, was much taller than Alexander, but the actor who is Hephaestion is not taller than Colin Farrell in the movie. So that bothered me a little bit. They have Olympias wield snakes. She really did wield snakes. They make her seem like this really foreign princess. She has this, I don't know, it's Angelina Jolie, and I don't know what accent she's trying to do, but it's supposed to sound very weird and foreign. And, uh, you know, she she was from an area that would not have been very foreign to the Macedonians. It was, you know, really, really close. So it's funny to me. She, she was a foreigner in that she wasn't Macedonian proper. She was from Epirus, but I don't know. They make the Persians known as these extremely cruel masters of Asia. Certainly they were viewed as tyrannical by the Greeks, but the Persians actually, one of the ways that they came to power was that the people before them, the Assyrians were viewed as very cruel. But by comparison, the Persians were actually known as pretty good rulers. That's one of the ways they came to power. Their taxes were pretty low. They generally wouldn't make you change your gods or your style of worship with a few exceptions. They kind of kept a, a loose rein on things and, and people were generally pretty happy with them as rulers. Now, Alexander and the Greeks would not have portrayed it that way. They would have made a lot out of their sort of Eastern Asian despotism. 
but I just thought it was funny that the locals in the Persian Empire would not have viewed it that way as the Persians being these overbearing, cruel taskmasters. One place that I think the movie really fails is that it makes Philip, Alexander's father, this barbaric, rude, bumbling, just just kind of horrible guy. And they don't show the genius behind him. And uh, I think that's that's way off. And then just the whole thing that they do, they, they try to make the central conflict about Alexander being this champion of anti-racism and human rights and understanding and loving everyone versus his generals and the men who are with him who are Greek and Macedonian chauvinists. There is something, I get why, why Oliver Stone does this, and that's because it did kind of play out this way. You know, Alexander was trying to unite the Greek and Persian halves of his kingdom. He was trying to mix the populations. He, he, he really did, you know, want to homogenize the empire and, and make less of a distinction between Greeks and Asians. The mistake is in thinking that this was born of, uh, of some love for human rights. And uh, this was probably done pragmatically, right? He, he wanted to do it so that it would make his empire easier to rule. Because as it was, the fact that they had different customs, different forms of worship, different languages, different populations just made it very difficult. And so homogenizing the two would have made it a lot easier. So this whole central narrative that Oliver Stone tries to play, I, I don't think was real at all. I don't know where Alexander would have got these ideas that he tries to give to him. One, and then the last thing I'll say about the movie, the one thing I do love is at the end, Ptolemy says, if he did fail, his failures tower over other men's successes. And uh, I thought that was a very good line and very true of Alexander and, and one of the other things that really makes him great. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is a question that I got asked, which is, if Alexander was Greek, then why was he light-haired and light-eyed? It's kind of an interesting question. I, I guess the implication is, if you know many Greeks, I know a few people of, of Greek ancestry, and uh, they're not typically blonde-haired and blue-eyed now. So if Alexander was Greek, you know, as a Macedonian, he was sort of Greek-adjacent. Why didn't he look like the Greeks that I know today? Okay, so a few things. First of all, I would call the Macedonians Greek. Basically, all the ethnic Macedonians got rolled up into the Greek nation and ethnicity over the following centuries. Same thing with those who were from Epirus, where his mother was from, and pretty much all those people kind of around Greece who spoke Greek languages and Greek dialects. You know, over the centuries, they all became Greek. Okay, so those are the people who are most closely related to Alexander. So why doesn't he look like them? Well, he probably does look like them. I should say, why don't his eye color and, and hair color match what you typically think should be for Greek? So Greece had been inhabited by a number of peoples. Most notably, you might have heard of the Minoans, uh, who are what you might call indigenous Europeans. Okay, so there were the people already around in Greece when they were invaded by the Mycenaeans or there was a migration, there's sort of controversy about whether this was a violent invasion or just a large-scale migration. But these people, the Mycenaeans, sometimes called the Mycenaeans, but Mycenaeans, the more common pronunciation, they come in and they're the ones who actually spoke the Greek language, which is an Indo-European language. So th these guys are Indo-Europeans. Indo-Europeans are these people from the steppe, essentially from, from Russia, Ukraine, that kind of area. And uh, how long? I, I think it's about... 6,000 years ago it starts, but they start doing all these invasions and migrations 
And they, they kind of, from this little area in Russia and Ukraine, they end up going through basically all of Europe, invading and taking it over, as well as Iran and parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. That's why they're called the Indo-Europeans. And these are the guys. So, so this was so long ago that everyone forgot about it, essentially. And then in the 1800s, you have all these people exploring and uh, and finding new parts of the world. And someone starts to go, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he's in India and he's learning, I think it's Urdu. And he starts going, you know, it's kind of funny. A lot of these words resemble words for the same thing that I know in English. And that's when he puts together, kind of comes up with this theory that, wow, all of these languages are related from English to German to Russian to Greek to Armenian, all the way over to Farsi, to, to what they speak in Iran, and to, to many Indian languages. These all came from one people. So these people, the Indo-Europeans, had blue eyes. It's one of the things that they were very notable for. These are Hitler's famous Aryans. He thought they, they were the, the super people, right? The, the greatest of all time. And he thought Germans were pure Aryans. This is not true. This is not correct. Hitler was wrong about, about the Aryans. But the, the Indo-Europeans were this, this real people. And so these Mycenaeans have blue eyes, probably light hair as well. And so these Mycenaeans invade Greece. And as you know, or you may or may not know, light hair and light eyes, a light complexion, is recessive. So if you have you know, a, a blonde mom, blue-eyed mom, and a, a dark-haired, dark-eyed dad, more than half of the children of that relationship are probably going to end up with dark hair, dark eyes. It's just the way it works. The, that brown hair and brown eyes are, are the dominant gene. And so over time, you know, as the Mycenaeans mixed more fully with the native Greek population, that hair color and that eye color just started to kind of fade away. And uh, in addition, you know, the Greeks mixed with a lot of their neighbors, including their, their Turkish neighbors. And so that brought in a little more ancestry that was, again, dark haired, dark eyed. And so just over time, it's become less and less common for Greeks to have that sort of light complexion that Alexander did have. You can see a similar thing actually in Spain. The Visigoths, who were this German tribe, invade and conquer Spain. And, you know, they're, they're Germans. They're full of blondies and blue-eyed people. And uh, I don't know how many Spaniards you know, but at this point, it's pretty rare for them to have blonde hair, blue eyes. But, you know, however long ago, 1,600 years ago or whatever, it would have been fairly common. So, um, you know, by the time Alexander came around, there was no racial distinctions between the Mycenaeans and sort of the native Greeks. They had mixed into what into Greek, right? Into, into just one population. But it would have been slightly more common in his time for Greeks to have light hair, light eyes. So there you go. That was a lot of very random information, kind of stream of consciousness, less organized. Let me know what you thought. Follow me on Twitter at HTTOTW on Instagram at HTTOTW. As always, rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for the newsletter on HTTOTW.com. Uh, until next time, I hope you will dream of Alexander and of the many conquests that you will embark upon as you follow in his shadow and his example. Until next time, Ben out.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 